welcome to uh, the video podcast. This is Consultants Saying Things, uh, episode five. Uh, today, um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, things related to process versus people, uh, continuous learning, continuous development, continuous feedback. Uh, I think part of the problem here is that a lot of us see throughout our, our daily work, uh, lots of work being put into agile and DevOps and development methodologies and, and getting stuff out the door very quickly. Um, not seeing so much uh, thinking, what did we just learn from this? And is there any way that we can improve what we're doing? And so I wanted to explore this topic a little bit, um, joined by uh, Phil Yanoff, Bill Bensing, Shashi Shramali, and a special guest today, uh, Tom Graves, is joining us live from the UK. Um, uh, Tom, I apologize for the American flag, but I, I, I have so my Union Jack. Australian anyway, so uh, it, it doesn't worry me that you're... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And to top it all off, I'm Canadian. So, you know, it's yeah. sort of, it's a, it's a mix all around. Yeah. Um, you know, so first of all, Tom um, has been an, uh, a consultant and an enterprise architect for a long time. Uh, he is the uh, purveyor of Tetradian.com, which lots of blog. If you want to know anything about enterprise architecture, that's, that's the one-stop source. He's also a prolific author. Um, such uh, titles as Doing Enterprise Architecture Right, right, or the right way, mapping the enterprise, and um, your latest uh, semi-fictional novel, Changes, yeah. um, which is also out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for joining us, Tom, and uh, you know, I, I might, I, I think I'll, I'll start with you if that's okay with the, the other guys on, on the call. Um, I, I kind of wanted to uh, get your perspective on, you know, the degree to which this is a problem. It's a problem I see. Uh, I don't know if it's something that is widespread that people see this as, you know, hey, we're not really learning from the successes and the mistakes and incorporating that back into our process. It, how, how big of an issue is this really? Lots. It's been around for a very long time. Um, Deming and the others, for example, if you look at Deming, he talks about the difference between doing things right and doing the right things. And often in DevOps, we're very good at doing things right. We're getting better at doing things right, mostly. But there's a tendency to go rushing off and doing whatever seems like a good idea at the time and not connecting it together. There's a tagline I use a lot in my work, which is things work better when they work together on purpose. And that's a useful little checklist because is it working together with something else? Are we actually doing what we're supposed to be doing? Is this actually satisfying the need? Otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels. So that's one side of it. The other one was this one about continuous learning. So on one side, it's are we doing the right things as well as doing things right? And the other one is, are we learning so we don't repeat the mistakes? I say MySpace, I see it as a fairly significant problem. Uh, continuous learning is really, it's, um, you think about uh, the, the concept of anti-fragility. Um, you have fragile systems and anti-fragile systems. And the whole idea behind anti-fragility is the system itself can learn to make itself better. So when some type of event happens, it's more than robust. It's able to actually become better from, from an impact. Uh, so as I look at this, as you really, without a feedback loop and, and sort of continuous learning approach, and now I'm not, I'm not talking about continuous learning from the fact of reading a book or keeping up to speed with technology, it's continuous learning from, okay, I've just made an action um, for some expected outcome. Did I achieve that outcome? Did I not achieve that outcome? And you know, what were the difference was there? Uh, a lot of people in software, well, I'm gonna be careful when I say a lot of people, that could be all overqualification. 
But uh, from my experience, or most of the times people are just trying to get to some end state and then go to some other end state when people don't think about the life cycle of software and 70% of it's in the maintenance phase. So to me, we only think about the 30% of the building, not the 70% of the maintenance. And that's where we fall short from a continuous learning uh, or a continuous uh, education perspective, mm. but how I think about it or how I see it. Well, I mean, you know, to me, I, I'm, I've been kind of working in a different space. And I, I think that I was going to ask that question back to Tom, you know, from his perspective, what were the critical moments that inspired him to come forward with this idea to begin with, right? I mean, there's got to be stories there. And that's probably some of the most powerful stuff we could start with. I'd like to hear from Shashi first, please, then. Yeah. So I think, you know, you can, again, segregate this into continuous learning in two forms. One is, three forms. One is, do we have a process uh, which promotes continuous learning, right? Do we have people or the culture, if they are tuned or more accustomed towards continuous learning? And Chris, you would remember from our uh, old booth days, um, that part of the overall process, we had project closed uh, you know, closed loop PCL, or a closed loop, yeah, right? Project, project part of that, yeah. yep. And part of the project, you were supposed to, you know, sit with the team and understand what we did well, what we didn't do well, and supposed to learn from that. Question is, how effective that was? So again, it. I hate to do that, and I hate to promote your book. It's less of a process problem; it's a people problem. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, it, it, it comes into every episode. We, uh, by the way, you know the people problem available on Amazon.com. Sorry. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, uh, yes, indeed. Sales pitch. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I'll be in all honesty. This was not a sales pitch, and I truly think it's the people problem. We have skipped people. We have put process in place. I don't think they are working very efficiently, right? So we did not address the people problem. We jumped to systems. We are making systems where systems can learn from. You know the way they have operated, and then kind of fine tune and fix themselves, leveraging robotic process automation and artificial intelligence. But still, the problem we need to fix is uh, you know culture, which entails people. Yeah. So, so Tom, I mean, to, to piggyback on on Phil's question and and what you've heard, I mean, what are the what are the war stories? Do, do, do these perspectives resonate with with what your experience is? Um, well, as a completely, uh, I'm probably one of the world's worst self marketers which may sound a bit odd, but I am particularly bad at learning a particular lesson, namely somehow I've got to charge money for this in this culture. I'm not living in a non-money economy, which is what I'm trying to understand. I'm My code days, I was one of the people who invented desktop publishing. So an awful lot of, um, you know, all-nighters and people wanting stuff and things like, one particular story was I had one guy who was absolutely passionate about finding the most clever way of writing a macro. The problem was the client wanted something fixed at 8 o'clock in the morning. And we had no way of finding the guy because he was out of the country at the time. And we had to sort out his mess on the spot. So there's this culture of being clever is actually not very helpful. Um, so it's, when we talk about continuous learning, it's not just continuous learning for the individual, but continuous learning as a team to do the simplest, to do two things in a simpler and more maintainable way. Your comment, Bill, about that 70% of the work is actually in the maintenance. This is so important. Just as a simple one, writing code in those days always, of course, all assembler. 
um, by the time I come back to look at the code that I'd written, three months later, I'd completely forgotten what it was trying to do. And therefore, I'm having to change, to, to maintain, to update, to move things around. Commenting is fine as long as you can di disentangle what the hell the comments are. I'm looking at people like Simon Brown and his C4 model. If you haven't come across his work, I'd strongly mm -hmm. recommend it. About the basics of an architecture is understanding what the big picture questions are that if you have to fix them, it's going to be expensive. It's going to hurt. Ruth Mallon and Dana Bredemeyer was really where I started when I finally got into software engineering. Um, that's what in the late 90s. But if you want a historical example of people who really built software that worked, I'm sorry I've forgotten her surname, but Margaret, who ran, Margaret, whatever her name was, who ran the, invented the term software engineering, who developed all of the, the, uh, the management of the code for Apollo and the Apollo landings, that software had to be able to cope with circumstances that no one understood at all. No one knew what they were going to be, and it's sub it survived by writing being written to handle error in itself. And we've, you know, all of these lessons are there. We've half the time, we spend most of our damn time just relearning the lessons that everyone learned 20 years ago and then 10 years ago uh, that we learned six months ago and have already forgotten. It's funny you say that. And by the way, uh, Margaret Hamilton. Hamilton. Thank you. That's the name I wanted. I want to definitely lift a cap. But, you know, it's funny you say that because just think about DevOps and all the lessons and the concept of DevOps that are coming forward. This stuff is stuff that was back in World War II. A lot of these concepts for software development are standard um, systems engineering concepts. And it's as if people treat software development and, you know, architecture different than any normal production environment. And the funny thing is they're, they're not different. They're the same. So as, you, as we talked about, like dimming, we were talking about earlier, Taiyo Chiono, Shigayo Shingo. I mean, go down the list, all of their things, single piece flow SMED, that's all completely applicable to the software world. And exactly you're talking about from like an error perspective and having to actually deal with your errors. We look at, uh, uh, you know, I think the anti-fragile code, it, it can take something and if not break, become better because of it. Um, it's it, it's interesting, uh, and the point I'm trying to get to is these aren't new concepts. The idea of DevOps that was put together was back in the 2009-10 was just another way to repackage, and a good way of repackaging. I'm not saying DevOps is a bad way to repackage, but another good way of just saying, hey, I'm going to take the goal that was written 20 years ago about manufacturing, take those lessons, and apply it to a software service instead of a physical manufacturing uh, line. And it's all completely, extremely relevant. One-to-one uh, -one relevant is where I'm going with that one. All right, wait. So, so I want to pick up on that thread for a second. But first, Bill, are are you sitting in a beanbag chair? What is that? I am sitting in a beanbag chair. <laughs> Sounds Both excellent. Excellent. Okay. Just, yeah. I thought he was on a trampoline. But... Yeah, a trampoline. Yeah. Your your uh your your image is bouncing up and down. So it could have been like like you were on a treadmill work desk or something like that. I, I didn't quite know what that was. So, um, uh, so all right, great. So these lessons are out there. They're, they're in history. We see them. Why aren't we learning these things? Is this a skill Good question? Problem? Is it a skill problem? Is it, is it 
what's what's the problem? Why why aren't we picking? Is it, or is it just like we're human beings and that's just how it is? You know, to me, I'm back. You know, not to use your term, the people problem. But I mean, I think it's cognitive bias, right? I mean, one of the things is we look at things, we think we already know it. And the thing is, we don't go back and do that learning point. You know, and I know we're going to get to part of what uh, Tom's talking about in here about his remedy for this. But I think that what happens is we look at a thing, we think we know how to do it. Lots of uh, software is developed. You know, it's got to be quick. We're going to try to get that thing out of here. We have a problem to solve. Um, you know, we're compressed. And so we don't take we never we didn't take that moment before to learn from the last problem, and we're not applying it to the next one in a methodical way, right? The issue is we're just kind of going That's forward on the loop. We already know how to execute, you know. And listen, I don't think we have to go very deep in our lives to find mistakes we've repeated again and again. Mine, Long John Silver's, it's never been good. I keep going back; it's still not good. Uh, mine's Taco Bell. It always seems like it's a great idea. Always a disappointment. Just always never, a disappointment. Never works. Yeah. Yeah. Shashi, you see this. I know you see this. I know we've worked together on projects where we've seen this. We see this not just in, in people repeating the same mistakes over yeah. and over again and not learning from, from the process, but like whole enterprises, right? Doing the same thing over and over. How many... I won't name the client, obviously, but there was a particular client, right? Where they're just doing the same thing year after year, and it continues to fail, right? And it's sort of like, why? Why do you see that? I mean, why do you think that's happening at at that level? One one theory I have is um, one of the many theories I have is people are doing their job, right? They're hired to do a specific job. So when people think about the job. They have a certain set of activities or tasks they need to finish. For example, if you hire a project manager, he's managing the project. Is he managing the outcome of the project? Might end up saying that, you know what, as long as I deliver it successfully, I'm a star. So I feel a part of it is also incentive alignment and people being passionate about learning continuously and fixing it and not repeating it the second time. Other thing which I want to you know bring it up is I read it in the recent past that if you are not learning, an entire week, if you are not spending at least four hours learning about something new or something from the past, then you are doing service to yourself as an individual practitioner. But nobody ever follows philosophies. Nobody ever sits back and say, okay, what did I learn new in this week? Right? And well, so, HR policies are geared towards that. But on that point, right, I, you know, a former employer of both of ours, right, had the, re the required learning number of hours per year, right, in order to get a good review you had to do whatever 40 hours of continuous education or whatever it is right and and i mean you know you you and i both experienced the same thing where it's like here we go i gotta do my continuous edu education or i don't get a good review right I'll, let me go into the thing and i'm actually doing my real work i'm just going to click the click through the videos right so that i can say i did it or whatever i mean yeah so targets 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 yeah it's, 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 it's the target it's, it's not recognized though right i mean people are aware of it right yes but the challenge challenge i see is this whole like you know getting those educational credit to get your required bonus is on top of 70 hours you already spent on projects <laughs> you see what i'm saying the policy is there that four hours needs to come from your family time which is Spend 70 hours on the project, then whatever few hours are left for your family, take four hours or 10 hours from that. That's how it works. It's a little thing called realism, which is sorely lacking in the culture. There's, um, 
don't know if you've come across, oh, plus, what's his name? John Seddon, but he talks about failure demand, where you, uh, you'll you have seen this if you try to contact, some, say, a telecoms call center to try and get sense out of them. They've got a target where they've got to get an answer to you within three minutes. You've just started to explain the problem. The three minutes reaches the end of the point, they cut you off. So you then call them again. And you get to the three-minute point, and they cut you off. So that's classed as productivity, for as far as they're concerned, because they're handling multiple calls. But it's not actually solving the problem. And it's useful to look at a lot of software and software development in the same way. That we're doing a lot of code and a lot of development, but are we actually solving the problem? So, so Tom, is that is that a mismatch between uh, the key performance indicator or the metric for success is mismatched against the actual delivery of value or so solving the problem or whatever it is. So we're measuring for this, even though it doesn't do this. In measuring the target. You described a, an example. You and Shashi just described an example, which is where you had you know, required learning on top of everything else. And all you're doing is performing to the target. You're not performing to the actual need. I've seen, you probably have seen, right, cases where uh, companies that are trying to do a very good job at delivering a product that meets a customer need will focus a lot on, uh, you know, uh, hands-on labs and customer focus groups and, you know, things where they're, they're capturing feedback during the, the development, like an MVP type of a thing, right? And, and they're bringing that back in and they're getting an end product, right, out the door. But, but that's product focus. It's not sitting back and saying, is our process working, right? Are we, yeah. are we operating efficiently? It's very product or service focused where I've seen it actually done, which by the way is few and far between. There's an example I've just been looked over to, to check. Uh, one of the most interesting ones I looked at was Pixar, Ed Catmull's book, uh, Creativity Inc. Because he said, as a uh, he started out as a nuclear physicist, or at least a, a physicist of some kind, and he said he moved over to looking at the people issues because it was even more of a challenge than physics was. But he said one of the things that happened after the first um, Toy Story video was that the managers were really upset because people hadn't followed orders, and he had to explain to them that the manager's job was a support function, not a control function. And, the, and he said that the, the crucial thing here was that the actual product was the end product of the film and people feeling that they had value out of it. Now, software was a huge part of that. The, I mean, Pixar started out as a software company. They're uh, geographic information systems. That's where they started. The, the animation stuff was just demonstrators. So it became that the kind of the demonstrator ended up wagging the dog um, and became the major focus of their work. But software is still a huge point. They're very, very large users of computer, compute power and software development. But it's integrated into the whole, very much your point about business and um, business IT alignment. There is no business IT alignment. They interweave. The concept of IT is simply part of how they do the work rather than something separate. So we've got this infuriating idea that IT is something separate <laughs> rather than 
part of the whole enterprise. When you talk to finance people, they talk about finance and the business. When you talk about H, everyone thinks that they're separate and special. Why not? We're just people doing part of the overall job. But when managers think that they should be controlling something that they don't themselves either do or understand, we're set up for failure but almost before we start. So what is, what is the remedy, Tom? How do we... Well, there is, the, the re there, it's, um, that's and, what and the... And by the way, before, before, before about, you answer this, yeah, before yeah. you answer this, do you, do you bill by the hour for the answer? I just want to make sure I have my, no, I my credit card. Um, I, I probably should. Um, uh, you you probably bill me for the answer. <laughs> you know it's funny. You talk about DevOps and just producing really a bunch of meaningless stuff. I was a couple months ago trying to write a piece called DevOps is Dead. Um, I really wanted to be provocative about it, so I went back and started researching the history of DevOps and everything with Gene Kim. And everybody, you know, what I've come to realize, and it's and I'm bringing this point up is people look at DevOps as a CI/CD pipeline throw out Git, throw out some Circle CI, some Jenkins, whatever it is, people look at DevOps as that. And it's such a, I believe a, it's like the concept of a minimally viable product. I love when uh, um, I was talking to somebody that day, like I got to do an MVP. I'm like, oh, what strategic assumption are you testing? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm building an MVP. They'd never <laughs> read the Lean Startup, so they didn't understand the concept of an MVP. So then I go to DevOps and people talking through DevOps, like, well, I need to see, I need a DevOps pipeline. It's like, well, DevOps is really just about a manufacturing and delivery system. It's not about the tools or the tech itself. It's about flow feedback and continuous, uh, uh, continual learning. I find the term minimum viable product an absolute nuisance. I'm, I'm looking for minimal useful product. <laughs> there you go. As in, how are you actually going to use it? It's not just, could it survive? But it, how, how, is, how useful is it? If it's not useful, what's the point? Okay, that, that's, that's the title. That's a book title right there. I'm just writing it down. Just yeah. I, I'll, I'll share a practical example. So I was in one of my last engagement, um, I was working for a regional health plan. And uh, one of the client executives invited one of the big fours um, to be their advisors. And this big four came. Um, and then they started talking about you know minimum viable product. Chief marketing officer and the operations head of operations, they said, What does this term even mean? I don't want minimum viable product. I need minimum product which can complete a unit of work for me. I'm not going to deploy a minimum viable product for a contact center when 90% of my uh, people are still using the legacy system and then 10% you are testing. The whole notion of minimum viable product needs to be looked at. It may be fine in um, the startup. You know, startup yeah. type of environment, if you're looking at the new product, if you are replacing a legacy system with a modern platform, concept of minimum viable product is absolutely appropriate. I, I think there are plenty of folks caught in the loop, just like you have seen yourself, right? There are lots of folks like, we're just going to do this the way we did it. And so it really takes some critical point that they've reached, right, where they go, oh, my gosh, we really screwed this up. And that kind of failure causes them to stop, right? I think about some of my own software deployments that we've done. And it's like, you know, we just got on a treadmill and we just kept running as fast as we could. And we never really stopped to catch the stuff that we needed to know. Um, and so I think, quite frankly, the kind of thing that brings us up, the kind of thing that leads us to somebody like Tom to ask the question of, all right, what do we need to do to do this better is usually failure induced, right? We've had some mess up and now we got to say, okay, that didn't work. And guess what? I can't afford to do that again. So let's figure out what we're going to do.
So you're yeah. saying it's never like the result of just deep introspection. <laughs> those, those people are few and far between. And again, you know, so, all right. So, I mean, you know, to, to, you know, now, Tom, I know you talked, uh, you gave a talk last year about uh, using uh, after action reports and things of that nature. It, what, are, what are the tools that we can use so that we, we can create a positive feedback loop in our process um, so that we don't have to have a failure before we say, hey, this isn't working? Right. What, are, what are some of the tools? Really, really good, obvious one. I mean, learn from the military. The US Army after action review is established everywhere. Look it up on Wikipedia. It's got the instructions there. It's, it basically breaks down to four questions and two rules. The two rules are pin your stripes at the door because whoever you were, if you're the team lead, the newest grunt, the manager, you all had a responsibility. In terms of action, everyone is exactly the same. There's no seniority here. We particularly want to avoid the problem of the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. Yeah. The second one is no blame. We're here to learn, not to blame. There's a, a really useful distinction between a finite game and an infinite game. This is James Cass, if you're into philosophy, about the distinction where you play a finite game, like a foot, you know, um, American football. You play a football game. You play the game to win. There is always a loser. But the infinite game of football is football itself. And you play an infinite game to learn. And the problem we've got with a lot of software is we're trying to run it as if it's a finite game, when actually it's an infinite game of how do we do software better. So no blame is one of the first rules, which brings us back to the people problem. Because the moment someone's trying to blame after a failure, we're not going to get anywhere. So. U.S. Army after action review. Imagine you're in a firefighting crew, out on you know on forest fires. They do the same. People on oil rigs will do the same. Any kind of work in emergency environment, they'll do the same. It consists of four questions, which was, what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What was the source of the difference? And what can we learn from that to do differently next time? So. But notice what that actually requires of us. First of all, that there was a plan. Otherwise, we don't know what we were supposed to be doing. Secondly, we've, we've been capturing records as we've gone along so that we can actually compare something. So one of the things you'll notice in DevOps, we capture things like velocity, but we don't capture the work. You've got to avoid the target trap of you know lines of code per day because anyone can write lines of code circularly. Yeah. The other one is you've got a process for actually comparing the plan to the results and look for what worked as well as what didn't. Far too many places look very closely for what didn't work and pay no attention to what worked well that they didn't expect. And the last one is what can I do, given all of this, how can I do it better next time? which means I'm willing to commit myself to an action, which is where we connect with Deming, that plan, do, check, act. The action is on me to do a change. I will look at how I do it. And the simplest distinction with this is, how many of you do New, um, new Year resolutions? Anyone? Yeah, but you'll notice that the, how long a New Year resolution actually lasts. We're talking about the ones that actually last, making it work. 
What I do with this is extend it slightly. First of all, before we get to the plan, what the hell are we doing? What's the big picture here? The purpose before we get to the plan. And also, who are the stakeholders? Who are we actually interacting with? And what are their interactions? So what's the purpose of this and the people involved before we get to the preparation and the plan? Then there is the process. What we're looking at now is at performance of this learning process, including what were the benefits realized? Following on from that, there's what can I do differently to do it better next time, which is connecting me back to purpose. And what can we as a team do to do it collectively? And that connects us back to the people issue. For example, pair programming looks like it's incredibly wasteful. Actually, what we're doing is cross-checking each other. So that's a really simple learning process. What's the big picture? Who are the people? Then what was the plan? What actually happened? What can we see for the difference? What can I learn? What can we learn? And so, and so taking that process and, you know, Bill, you do, you know, a lot of agile development and things like that. And Shashi, you work with enterprises that do this and Phil, you, you deal with people that work on this, this stuff. How, how do we take that process and, and actually like activate it? If I'm a practitioner, I, can I call my own after action review? If I'm a manager, do I, do I incorporate this into my daily scrum or whatever? If I'm an executive, is this something I say? Yeah, now, everyone will do this. Go. How do we how do we activate this as a as a remedy to the problem? Uh, the actual problem is uh, you know can only be solved by people who are within the firm. As a consultant, you can go and talk about scaled agile. You can talk about you know changing your culture, continuous learning, design beautiful processes, incentive systems, but where it fails 99.9% of the time is in the execution for it. Execution is something which is highly underrated and strategy is highly overrated. Yep. See, I see Tom already kind of agreeing to that. <laughs> so, yep. I've got a very strong opinion about the role of consultants. Our job <laughs> is to support, not to try to tell people what to do. I mean, I think Tom is spot on. I love this idea, and I don't think this has to be long. It just has to be a moment of reflection, right? And I'm, I'm going to give a yes and answer to this. Um, I think this idea of taking a moment at the end to figure out what did we learn, the after action report is strong, that's powerful. I think we can reinforce that by adding to it the idea of doing a pre-mortem against some projects as we yep. begin. Right. And so people that I spend time with, you know, a lot of times they don't seem to be able to visualize why a thing is going to go wrong. I mean, they don't take the moment to do that. And so we take a lot of times when I'm working with somebody, I will sit them down at the beginning of a project and said, now imagine we're, you know, six months or a year or whatever it's supposed to be. We're six months into this and this thing failed. What went wrong? What did we do wrong? How did that happen? And then we figure out what are the steps we're going to take to mitigate that. So I love the after action report. I like I said, I'm going to reinforce that learning with a pre-mortem probably as well. And that's kind of my approach to it. So uh, picking up on that on that on that point, Phil. So so that's that's the practitioner. How does senior management work this into what they do? And it, now me, I want to be part of a learning organization, right? I am not the cat that wants to repeat those mistakes. So I think as senior management, I think I'm going to put this as part of the schedule. This is what we do. This is how we communicate. 
with our teams, this is what we expect from them. Yeah. One thing I'd add to this also is that the importance of that an after action review, well, on, on that um, slide, on that session we did for the Enterprise Architecture Conference, a whole team could do it in less than 10 minutes. It's But the crucial point is that you do it straight away. Right. Remember, it's the basic version of it is just four questions. What was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What's the difference? What can I learn from it to do differently? Yeah. You can do it that far. What we've got to understand is there are... It's very... That's the trick, is to get it quick. There are different types of organizations. It's relatively easier to um, do this with startup because you're starting, you know, ground up, greenfield. You can set the culture right the way you want. You hire people from that mindset. Then it's easier to build. But when with an enterprise who have been legacy enterprises, been working for years in the same way, it's extremely difficult to in you know cultivate this type of culture or habits and good habit. Extremely difficult. One so, of the reasons why you can introduce it is through pointing out that this is the army that's pushing this. It's if you want a legacy environment that's been around for quite a while, look at the U.S. Army. And these are the guys who are really pushing this and saying it's important. The other one is things like checklists, but that's another story at another time. Um, it's just delivering this stuff. It's a it's a practical. It's used in high stress environments. One of the problems you've got with DevOps as a as an environment, which Bill Mount pointed out, is it's very poor on dealing with legacy. It's de it's great on the actual startup view, but actually running the damn thing is a different beast. And the point about an after action review or something of that is it covers both of those types of spaces and links them together as a team. I love it. I think this is good stuff. Um, I, 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 I want to kind of bring this home with sort of, you know, if there's if there's a key takeaway, one one thing, right, that that, you know, someone watching this should should take away and, and go do or go think about or go learn or whatever. What's that? What's that thing? For me, I think you take this thing that Tom talked about right off. I mean, I think I'd be taking that after action report. If I'm not high enough up in this organization to control this for everybody, you know, I would get a group of guys together over lunch and say, all right, what did we learn from what we did? You know, I mean, you could start this as a casual conversation if you are not in the spot to control the conversation at the top level. Do it. That's my that's my takeaway. Do this. The, fir the first thing I do in any instance, I give somebody a copy of the Phoenix Project and say, read this. Um, don't use the term DevOps and read this. And then let's, 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 let's have a talk because it comes down to really establishing the concept of delivering software from a manufacturing perspective and manufacturing quality. So all of your whys, your hows, your whats, um, I like that in a book and having an intellectual conversation over that. What I, what I would encourage people to do, um, depending on what level they're at, is to dig deeper into some of the people like the Dimmings and whatnot and where those practices came from. Because what I'm coming to realize is, that I talked about, I hate using the words agile and stuff like that. People are using these sort of cliche, um, ungrounded concepts as if they are something that's firm and it's not. And what you come to realize is you have different manufacturing processes, but at the end they all, uh, good manufactured processes develop good products. And so by reading something like the Phoenix Project and asking those intellectual questions, then you can say, okay, here's, you can develop that plan for what I need to do to build quality into my software system, uh, and broadly speaking, uh, in an organization. Need commitment at 
different levels, starting from individual to middle management to senior management and executives. You need that commitment. You need conscious commitment. You need to have an executives need to have an appetite uh, to accept the change. You know, because I mean, traditionally we are all hierarchical. It's extremely difficult for us to accept, um, you know, ideas coming from any side of the organization. The culture needs to be fixed. Commitment has to be there at every damn level. The one thing I'd say is just build a habit of continuous learning because we want to get better. Bill's point about quality. We want to make things work. We go home feeling happier if, we, if, if it's working better. Life is worth having if we do it better. So building this process of we are learning what we're doing in the, just taking this momentary breath. It's not a, not a part of a formal process. It's just let's do a quick check. <coughs> quick check. Just what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? What can I learn from the difference? What can I do differently next time? And this point that 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 Shashi was on about about commitment. There's just a commitment to building a habit, not as a formal process, but just let's make a habit of checking. Excellent. Getting better. Yeah. I love it. Guys, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Tom, thank you for uh, you know, staying up through the middle of the night. I know that's not true, but you know, we'll just pretend, right? But uh, you know, I'm glad we got this transatlantic Google Hangout to work. Um, that that worked out really well. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time, guys, um, and thanks for everyone that's wa that's watching this. Uh, again, as always, um, you know, we'll we'll make sure that uh, all the information uh, that we know about this and some of Tom's presentations, I think, are on SlideShare, and there's some uh, presentations and some videos. Get all those links in uh, in the, the section below the video. Um, any comments, questions, we're always looking for topics and new ideas for guests. And Tom, I hope we have you back at some point because I think there's there's a lot to talk about in, in a lot of these areas. So sure. thanks for watching, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time. Super.